0: We make decisions every day, but these days, those decisions, big and small, can feel paralyzing. Welcome to Deciding Factors, a new podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. Each week, I'll talk to a world-class expert who has faced incredibly tough decisions and can offer unique insights to help you navigate the decisions you face. So I am very excited today to be joined by Dr. Mark Dybel. He's the former U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator, and he is currently at Georgetown University, where he's the professor in the Department of Medicine at the Medical Center and co-director of the Center for Global Health Practice and Impact. He's also a mentee of Dr. Tony Fauci. I think his experience as the U.S. Global AIDS Coordinator is so relevant to fighting the COVID-19 pandemic that we face today. So as always, from our separate living rooms, please join us for my conversation with Dr. Mark Diebel.. Mark, welcome. We are thrilled to have you with us today. Great to be with you. Mark, what do you think is the most important thing for us to focus on right now?
1: There are two things. One, and if where epidemics have gotten out of control, we need to focus on providing as much care and treatment as we can so that people don't die. At the same time, in those environments, but in every environment where the epidemic is just starting to take off or where it hasn't taken off, we need to focus on testing, tracing, and quarantine. I call that T2Q, two Ts and one Q. The testing component, find people who have the virus, you then trace all of their contacts, which is contact tracing or just tracing, and then depending on your system, you quarantine people exposed or people who have the virus. As you're tracing, you of course have to test all the people you're tracing uh, to know whether or not they need to go into quarantine. And so that is the essence of of preventing a resurgence, but also being able to support other countries so that they don't have a vast viral spread that could come back to bite us, um, but also to be prepared in our country for the future, not only for this pandemic, but any other pandemic. And again, the countries that did well Uh, had those systems in place because they failed in a previous pandemic, MERS and SARS. And so they put those systems in place. That's what we need to put in place now to be able to respond in this country. That's what we need to support other countries to do, both to help them, but also to protect us for the future. And it's what we have to have in place in case this virus comes back in a cyclical way or in the fall, potentially in a more deadly form.
0: I think at this moment, we're having a really animated discussion in the country about the cost of reopening the economy in the U.S. Uh, and, and state by state. How would you advise policymakers to weigh the costs of preventing the spread of COVID versus the economic toll of a closed economy?
1: So it's a great question. And, you know, until recently, we've had the opposition of economy to health and Recently, fortunately, some uh, health economists and other macroeconomists have gotten into the picture and said that's a actually false dichotomy. If people don't feel safe uh, and if they're afraid to go out, um, whatever we do from a government perspective in terms of restrictions and not restrictions, their likelihood of returning to normalcy, of, of getting on planes, of moving around, of going to stores, of returning to normal economic structure is pretty low. Uh, if it's going to take some time to do that, that's going to require confidence that the epidemic is, in fact, over. Otherwise, the economy isn't going to come back no matter what, at least not quickly. The keys will be, um, as restrictions are lifted, how will the virus rebound? Uh, what will it look like? Will we have sporadic outbreaks or will there be a resurgence? And secondly, uh, do we have the systems in place uh, so that as sporadic outbreaks occur, we're able to identify them, do contact tracing, quarantine, basically repeat what South Korea and Singapore did so well uh, without shutting their economies down completely. Um, Or if we're not prepared and we have these resurgence uh, waves, then we're going to be in trouble and people will just go back to their corners. And that's the big problem of knowing and being certain that you have the ability to respond because we will have new infections. We know this from China I mean, unless you close down your borders entirely and uh, don't allow anyone to move between a city or a state or a country, as long as there's this virus somewhere in the world you're going to see new infections popping up there's always a tension between anything, but you know public health experts. Are also looking to the future. They're not just looking at this epidemic. You know, if your economy collapses, the risk to health of people for the long term is pretty bad because your health, your people who are insured, at least in our country, are, is less. Your resources available for healthcare are less. Uh, facilities are less. Healthcare workers are less. I mean, you, you. This is not just a healthcare response immediately. It's looking to what does our health look like for the future. And the economy is very much tied to health. It's not one or the other. They have to come together. We have to wait and see. There's too much we don't know about this new virus. Um, and then looking to the future, we have to be very concerned that the virus is throughout the Southern Hemisphere that is moving into winter, their winter. Equatorial countries tend to have viruses throughout the year. And ge- the genes of this virus are changing pretty rapidly. And then the risk is that a resur- if it is seasonal, there could be a resurgence of a potentially even more deadly virus. Uh, in the fall. And again, if we don't have the T2Q in place, the testing tracing and quarantine in place, even if we do well now, it's possible in the fall will it'll be a disaster again and we'll go back to where we are today.
0: What does it look like to control a resurgence, right? Like how will we know if it's under control as it's happening versus a resurgence that is out of control?
1: It, you have to have a lot of tests Kits available. You have to have established contact tracing and you have to have established quarantine policies. So again, uh, we know this works. This is what South Korea, Singapore, and Taiwan did um, and why they'd never had a bad epidemic because they did that. They'd put those systems in place as a response to their SARS and MERS epidemics, which are other coronaviruses. We never had that experience. We started to prepare around those, but then we never went through with it because we weren't affected by those viruses, but they kept those systems because they knew they could get hit again. And so we have to have those systems in place. You know, I think what the governors in the Northeast of the United States are doing, and now in the West as well, talking amongst each other, so at least regionally, because there's so much regional movement that they can be in concert as they lift sanctions and know that they have in place the ability to detect, to test, to contact trace or to trace and to quarantine. I think that the key to this is leadership at every level, uh, nationally and at the state and even community level, and being honest. If you're honest with people, if you explain things clearly and tell them, this is what we know, this is what we don't know, this is how we're acting, and this is what we're going to do to protect you, both economically and uh, from a health perspective. This is why Tony Fauci is such. A, a, and I have to, you know, caveat this and, and um, give my own conflict of interest that Tony is my mentor and, and a very good close friend. But this is why he is so, among many reasons, why he's so valuable to us because he can explain this in clear terms that everyone can understand. And then you can monitor as you're easing restrictions off what's happening in terms of the spread of the virus and are you able to control it. If you're not, you're gonna to have to put restrictions back on pretty quickly, even if you've only eased them off a little bit. The requirement for test kits, of course, is gonna be going down as the inf- infection abates. That doesn't mean production's going down. Hopefully the government will be working to ensure full production is maintained, I think, through the fall. And there are ways to do that, um, including sending te- test kits to the southern hemisphere so we're better prepared for the fall if it comes back, assuming it's even seasonal, which we don't know yet. But you have to have a lot of test kits available. But, you know, the number of cases in the in the states that were originally hit are leveling off or decreasing. However, in other parts of the country, they're just starting to take off. And so that's why regional approaches and, and taking a, a, a more systematic approach across states is going to be essential and then tracking those cases. The bottom line is if you don't have T2Q, test, trace, and quarantine systems in place, as you start lifting, there is no question there are going to be new infections. If you're not ready for them, you could be have another peak just as bad as the first peak.
0: How should we feel as citizens with our government knowing uh, the information associated with contact tracing, who we have come into contact with?
1: It's an excellent question. And and, and certainly what is in place in Asia and those three countries that did well uh, is probably not something we're going to be able to do in this country for those very reasons. Uh, they actually trace people's cell phones. In some places, they made public, although in an anonymous way, where people had gone so that people could know if they were ex- potentially exposed. Um, text messages were sent. Uh, Now, everything was anonymous, but someone holds that data. Google and Apple have a key system that they propose that that is true, um, probably can protect, but um, it's a limited approach. And I think there are going to be issues about the trust in some of those systems for privacy. But there are other technologies in the non-for-profit space. And Georgetown University, oddly enough, happens to have one of them that has what what they call a black box, where it is impossible to ever be able to trace Uh, An individual's name or an individual's identity going into the box would be a patient, a person identified with the the virus, Uh, even with their name, which would then disappear once it's in the box. The box could then actually identify any flight they'd been on, track their cell phone, track their license plane tags, but in an anonymized way, analyze those data and spit it out anonymously. So the only information is in that box and it's actually impossible to break into that box. So what we need to focus on is creating technological solutions that protect our values, including privacy, data ownership, and other key um, areas, and helping people understand that that is what we're doing.
0: I've heard you talk before about the 1918 flu and, and that experience and what we've learned from it. It sounds like obviously the resurgence in 1918 is a bit of a nightmare scenario for us. It was linked to troop movements during World War I. Could you walk us through what we should learn from the 1918 flu and any thoughts you have on the likelihood of a, you know, a resurgence in the fall or winter that's even worse than the one that we're having now?
1: The first case actually was identified in the United States at an army camp, uh, training camp. Um, But it uh, it infected about three quarters of um, French troops and half of British troops. So it was pretty widely disseminated, but it didn't kill many people. So people didn't really pay attention to it. As troops began moving, and they always do move, they moved south to northern Africa and then over to India and uh, ultimately back to Asia again. As it moved, the theory is it genetically mutated And so as it came back, actually in August, it came back in a much more deadly form that killed, estimates vary between 50 and 100 million people, which for the size of the population then is pretty extraordinary. And then it disappeared again in November. A third wave actually popped up again in December, January, actually around the Paris peace negotiations, and also in Australia as troops went home at the total demobilization. And so there were actually three waves, and it was the last two waves that were so deadly. What we need to be worried about uh, is the same thing could happen. So it's not related to troops this time, it's related to travel. I mean, just to put it in context, a total of 75 million troops were mobilized over three years of World War One. Last year alone, the United States had 234 million international travelers coming in and out of the country. So Now we are connected to the entire world. um, And that is a fundamentally different thing. So we don't need troop movement. We have movement naturally. And we have the virus now throughout the Southern Hemisphere. As best we can tell, it is not moving rapidly, which might give some validity to the temperature sensitivity because they're in their um, late summer, early spring, and generally are more temperate, but are heading into winter, particularly the further south of the equator you get, The more winter you get. So South Africa, which is way at the tip of Africa, they have from 60 million people, 10 million, 11 million cases of influenza every year. So the risk is that we kind of repeat that pattern. We see a dissipation of the virus in the northern hemisphere, except for sporadic outbreaks due to travel, which hopefully we would have the systems in place to contain. The virus continues to move through the south, changing genetically. And if we're not engaged down there, if we're not active down there, if we're not tracking, tracing, and doing quarantine down there, limiting the spread of the virus, the virus can mutate at a more rapid rate. And then it could come back in the fall and be potentially more deadly uh, than this strain was.
0: Is it common for a virus to genetically mutate into a form that is more deadly than its prior form?
1: It's not, but it's very common for the virus to mutate. Nature drives better survival. And so if people's immune responses start doing well against a virus, it will mutate um, so that it can get around those host defenses. All viruses are mutating all the time. This one's mutating faster than, say, influenza. We don't know what that will mean, except that it's a little worrying. Um, And it doesn't mean that those variants will be more deadly, but if they mutate in a way that our immune response can't recognize, then that's a problem.
0: Let's say we are able to conquer uh, coronavirus in the U.S. by call it the middle of the summer. Would you advise policymakers to effectively shut down the country, i.e., you know, travel bans, aggressive travel bans, and, and to, to, to try to contain things for as long as possible? Absolutely not.
1: If you're talking about an economy, you can't function that way. And we could have every country just shutting down its borders, and but you you actually can't do that because not everyone's going to do that. And so if people from Africa or Latin America are going to Europe, we shut our borders to Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia, but lots of other countries won't. So those people are going to go to other countries, then you basically have to shut your borders to everyone. Uh, it's a great way to go back to nation states where our economy collapses and we're you know back to the 1900s. So the better way to do that, in my view, is to now engage in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly in Africa, which um, has a lot of complexities. It's a very young population, so you could see a lot of silent infections and a lot of silent genetic drift or mutations um, because we're not following it. We don't see it because it's a younger population. But the more we support them to contain their virus spread, um, the less The the virus can mutate, and secondarily, the less virus there's around to be spreading all over the world. Um, Not to mention supporting them as people who matter and that um, have have the right to health as well. But we also then simultaneously need to be putting in place in our own country uh, the the T two Q, so that we have our testing, contact tracing, and quarantine. So if someone does come into the country, we can follow it. If you go into an airport in Asia internationally, they check your temperature before you come into the country. They've been doing it for years, since Mars and Earth. Africa does it. It, It's astounding to me that we have people coming from all over the world and we don't check temperatures when they come into the country. If you know what countries have the virus, you don't have to cut travel from them. You just need to be a little more careful about people coming from those countries as they're coming into our country. Um, And be a little more rigorous and certainly knowing who they are and who was on that plane. Uh, so that if, there's, if you do find a case, you can trace it quickly.
0: You mentioned the importance of supporting other countries. How can we be supporting other countries now when we're so mired in fending it off ourselves? And maybe how might that evolve over time?
1: This is the first truly global pandemic uh, that affects everyone. This is the first time we're truly seeing that the health of the world is our health. For the future, the risk of pandemics like this grows exponentially because of the change in climate, because of the interaction of human beings, because of interactions between animals and human beings. The risk of these pandemics is growing, and whether or not this one disappears, we are absolutely going to have others. Let's just focus on Africa, the US has already invested heavily in the health of Africa and in the development of Africa. Uh, and African leaders are actually, in some ways, ahead of the rest of the world. Maybe because their epidemic came a little later, maybe because there are some pretty strong leaders like Paul Kagame and Cyril Ramaphosa and Macky Sall and President Kenyatta. And I'm just mentioning some, there are many. What we can do now. Uh, is support them in ways that we can. We cannot send ventilators. We can't send test kits because we need them. We can't send PPE. But others can. The Gates Foundation, uh, China is sending a lot, which we ought to pay attention to because if we don't engage and China does, uh, that's problematic for us on a variety of fronts. But we have a pretty strong infrastructure in many countries related to health because of our massive investments in HIV, malaria, tuberculosis programs, vaccination programs in those countries, maternal and child health in those countries. And so what we can do is provide technical support to the countries in several ways. One, unlike the United States, they actually have an incredibly strong community health-based delivery system. And that's because they have to. They don't have a lot of doctors and nurses in tertiary care hospitals. So the U.S. has actually supported, but it's African-led, significant uh, community health-based workers who are very good at contact tracing and case identification. That's what they've been doing for malaria and TB and maternal and child health. So they actually begin with an infrastructure. What we can do is support them um, financially and with technical support to build out those structures for effective, testing, tracing, and quarantine, which they're used to and can manage with a little bit of support and then leave it for others, at least until we can provide them test kits, PPE ventilators to provide those. The cell phone companies in Africa are very different. Airlines are very different um, uh, than the United States or Europe. Um, Some of our airlines fly there, but they have a lot of their own national airlines. And often the cell phone companies and the airlines are connected to the heads of state or the governments, or even partly owned by the government. So there's an opportunity to support them to build really sophisticated, but not expensive technologies to allow contact tracing, which again, keeps the number of infections down, but also allows us to track and understand what's happening with the infections and what's happening with the genetics of the virus in sub-Saharan Africa uh, over the course of the summer. So it's very much in our self-interest to support countries today to have the capacity and the systems uh, in place. And then as we can provide the commodities, we can add the commodities, but we can provide this support the systems today. Congress has put in about $1.5 billion in money for uh, to support low and middle income countries through this epidemic so we can use it and use it well not only for them but also in our own self-interest and so that china is not the only one there supporting them so there's a lot we can do today that is good for their epidemic which makes it good for our epidemic but also helps us understand what we might see uh, for the coming months and year years um, from this epidemic or others
0: Within a climate of incredible fear and divisiveness and anxiety, I, I just wonder as the global AIDS coordinator working to try to partner among nations, what advice would you give to work through that fear to build trust and kind of as any team needs to work well together to you know, accomplish a goal that's in everyone's interest?
1: This virus should make very clear that the health of the world is our health. Now, I understand that everyone including in Europe and the United States, is dealing with their own epidemic. And so the bandwidth to also deal and think about a global effort is is limited while you're in the midst of your own epidemic. But President Macron is in the midst of a very bad epidemic in France, and he's working very closely with the Africans and making sure that their development and research infrastructure in Africa goes to support their pretty considerable efforts. And the Africans are taking a different approach and working across country. They have presidents talking to each other. like They're like, the governors now are getting in the United States midway through the epidemic, they started at the beginning, started talking with each other across the African Union, started linking economics and health together. So it's a good example of what can happen when you work together. And then we can take the examples of the governors. This is how we used to function. We saw in the response to the HIV epidemic, we saw in the malaria response uh, that we understood, even though we weren't affected by it in the same way, That we had a global responsibility as the leader of the world in many ways, and to whom many people look to, to bring people together, to actually coordinate. The U.S., in my view, should be supporting a global task force that crosses the various sectors, including economic and health, to start to put together a global response. And who does what? What's that division of labor? We've been, become so focused internally that we're not seeing that. And to be honest, we're losing our leadership role. We were seeing unquestionably throughout the world and importantly in Africa and other low and middle income places that will be our marketplace for the future as their biggest supporter and partner. That is not the case anymore.
0: There's a lot of fear out there, as we've talked about, and we know that COVID did emerge from China. It's already driven a wedge between uh, China and the United States. There's a political narrative, let's say, associated with that at the moment. Setting that aside, there does seem to be the need for a real conversation with China about its uh, wet markets and not just that, but also the manner in which it handled the emergence of the virus in Wuhan. How would you advise? the president, you know, U.S. policymakers to address that very sensitive subject? Is it, is it even appropriate to address now? Do you have to wait until after we sort of get through this? What, what's your take?
1: Uh, it's a great question. There have been tensions with China um, all along. This is not new. It has been reported already that 95 percent or so of the infections and deaths in, in China could have been averted. Not because they didn't respond, but because they didn't use the system they had. So the reason they're doing well now is they actually had the system South Korea and Singapore and Taiwan have. um, But they didn't use it, not because of the health officials, but because local political leaders in Wuhan um, prevented the health officials from reporting the Sentinel cases because they didn't want Beijing to think they had a problem. So they could have actually averted most of this. But the notion that had China stopped it in Wuhan, we wouldn't have the global epidemic makes little sense to me. By the time anyone detected it, there was virus moving, and it's not just that it was in one city. And so we can argue about the past, or we can look forward to the future and the future that we need to have, which is all of us working together in the most collaborative way. And there are some great examples of that, what the European Union is trying to do, what the governors in our country are trying to do regionally, what international researchers are doing on vaccine research today, where basically they're throwing out all the old you know, protect my data rules and sharing everything so that we can get to the, a vaccine as quickly as possible. This is quite doable. And again, it comes back to how do we want the world to look? What world do we want? Do we want one that's looking backward with fear? and it's constant companion hate? Or do we want a world where we're working together collectively, optimistically, looking forward and outward with hope? And it, there, there is no problem we can't solve if we do that.
0: Well, Mark, absolutely fascinating. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Very constructive. I can hear the echoes of uh, Tony Fauci in, in your optimism and uh, professionalism. So thank you again for taking the time. Uh, a really fascinating discussion.
1: Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: That was Dr. Mark Dybel, former U.S. Global AIDS coordinator and currently at Georgetown University, where he is professor in the Department of Medicine at the Medical Center and the co-director of the Center for Global Health Practice and Impact. Mark stressed that COVID-19 is showcasing how interdependent global public health is today. We see this in the way that France and the African Union are collaborating and how African presidents are communicating to share information and resources. Mark believes that the U.S. should be leading a global task force to reach across hemispheres and disciplines. He fears that the traditional role that the U.S. plays as leader has diminished. Mark said that the conventional wisdom that public health and reopening the economy are at odds is not correct. If people don't feel safe, if they're afraid to go out, or if there's a loss of public trust due to reopening without proper safety precautions, the economy won't bounce back. In order to responsibly reopen, we must test people who have the virus— trace their contacts, and quarantine those who've been exposed to it. A major theme across the whole conversation is the need for us to collaborate effectively at the local level, at the state level, and around the world. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors with another one of GLG's council members. Please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics at decidingfactors at glgroup.com. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Chaffee. Stay safe out there, and thanks for listening.